This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Love a good deal? Sail into the season at Banana Republic Factory's Mega Labor Day Sale. Entire store 50 to 70% off. Dresses from $19.99. Polos from $16.99. Find your nearest store or shop online only at Banana Republic Factory. You are listening to On the Daily, the Rotoviz Daily Fantasy Sports Podcast, powered by Rotoviz Radio. Hey everyone, I'm Matt Freeman, Matt is the Oracle of Fantasy Labs and Rotoviz. Welcome to the February 9th, 2018 NASCAR edition of On the Daily. I'm joined by Dr. Nick Giffen, an owner of Rotoviz, a PhD mathematics, a three-time qualifier for the DraftKings NASCAR main event, and one of the best NASCAR DFS players in the world. You can follow him on Twitter at Rotodoc. Nick, how's it going? Hey Matt, I'm doing really well uh i am excited because we are recording this on friday at noon uh pacific time and the race i think is sunday at noon pacific time so we're 48 hours away from the first race of the season which of course is the clash i can't wait yeah the clash uh i know it's not an official race but i think it's actually one of my favorites just because of how kind of love a good deal sail into the season at banana republic factory's mega labor day sale entire store 50 to 70 percent off dresses from 1999 polos from 1699 find your nearest store or shop online only at banana republic factory like random it is oh yeah random unique uh it's it's a really cool race it's a lot of fun to watch um, the cars, uh, the drivers, I should say, they just go all out going for the win. Um, we'll talk about it more, I'm sure, but, uh, it really is a fun race to watch. Yeah. So let's talk about it a little bit. It is a preseason all-star race of sorts. Uh, DraftKings once again has a slate for it and there are several reasons to play the slate. So first it's a great warm up for next weekend's Daytona 500. Uh, there's a $600,000 GPP for the, the, the Daytona 500, the Daytona 500. Let me figure out how to say that there's a $600,000 GBP for the Daytona 500. Uh, so a big reason to be playing that slate. And this is excellent practice for it. And then of course, Nick, you won the slate two years in a row in dominant fashion. Uh, so let's talk about it a little bit. Two years ago, you took first, second and third place in the slate. And then last year you had the top five lineups after a last lap crash between Danny Hamlin and Brad Kozlowski. Uh, how excited are you that NASCAR is back? Um, not just that I'm excited for the clash. I'm just excited that NASCAR is back in general. I've, I've definitely missed it. Um, it's, you know, it's only a three month off season, but it felt longer than that actually for me. Uh, I guess you, you almost died of the flu, like multiple it, strains of the flu. So yeah, yeah, exactly. But, uh, so we, we bring in a new season, a, a healthy rotodoc, so to speak, and uh, I'm 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 excited. We're gonna, there's a lot of new stuff happening this year. We've talked about it on the previous uh, podcast. The new Chevy, some drivers shuffling around, uh, some new rules like with the laser inspection and all that. So 
Uh, it'll be an interesting year for sure, and we'll definitely have a couple of things to adapt to. But right now, we start off with the old classic, restrictor plate racing. Definitely my favorite kind of racing for DFS. I think we know why. Okay, so we're going to talk about a little more in terms of strategy later on. But first, just give a brief recap of how you have tended to approach this slate, this race, for the last two years. Yeah, it's it's funny because I generally approached it the same in terms of like the the macro uh strategy but there were some micro differences because uh the field sizes were different each of the past two years so two years ago it was a 25 driver field last year it was a 17 driver field and that dictated a little bit of changes but generally speaking uh it's like any other restrictor plate you're playing ownership percentages and you're playing place differential. Uh, like I said, that's kind of generally speaking. But um, ownership percentage is the heavy focus. You want to try to find drivers that'll be low owned. Uh, you want to, you know, project ownership as much as you can. Now, of course, we can't build a model for this because it's a it's a race that is so unique that it's hard to model what ownership percentages will be. But generally speaking, we can get a good idea of where drivers will be owned. So a lot of it is just approaching ownership percentages. Uh, but but really, I like to kind of – my personal thing that I like to do is hone in on one or two drivers that I think uh, will have a lot more upside than their ownership percentage uh, or projected ownership percentage suggests. And so that's kind of the way I've approached both of the, the winning weekends. So two years ago, Paul Menard was the guy I honed in on. Last year, I honed in on Alex Bowman. Uh, they ended up in the winning lineup in, in the two in the respective years. So uh, we'll probably try to do that again. We'll see if we can't hone in on a driver uh, who who you know has a good chance to beat his upside relative to his ownership percentage. Okay, so the clash is very unique. Can you talk about the format of the race and the drivers who are eligible to compete in it? Yeah, so the race is 75 laps in length uh, and kind of like in the regular season now where there's, or, you know, not just the regular season, but also the, the playoffs, uh, but I should say the regular races, the non-All-Star races, uh, this will be divided into stages. Um, here they're called segments, I guess. And the first segment is 25 laps. And then the second segment is 50 laps. So it's a 75-lap race, two segments. Everybody's going to probably come in and make a pit stop. Uh, you know, it, They're going to have to uh, after 25 laps because the, the last segment's 50 laps, and you can't go a full um, stint of 50 laps. So everybody's going to come in and pit. They're also going to have to pit sometime during that 50-lap second segment. Um, so... I talked about how there has been different field sizes in the past. Two years ago, it was 25 cars. Last year, it was 17 cars. Turns out this year, we also have 17 cars eligible. And the eligibility rules uh, are such that um, the field is limited to drivers who meet these following criteria. Drivers who were awarded a pole in 2017, so who won the pole in 2017, races. So there were you know, 36 races last year. If anybody won a pole in a race last year, they're eligible. Former Clash winners, former Daytona 500 pole winners who competed full-time last year, and drivers who qualified for last year's playoffs. So that only gives us 17 cars. There are more that were eligible. For example, Matt Kenseth, eligible. Dale Earnhardt Jr., eligible. Danica Patrick, eligible. But none of them right now are uh, racing because of retirement. Now, we know Danica Patrick's going to be racing the Daytona 500, but she'll be not be racing in the Clash here. So... That leaves us with 17 drivers uh, for this weekend's race. 
Okay, so with 17 drivers, that means there's uh, less opportunity for place differential compared to a full 40-car field. And then additionally, since the race is only 75 laps, there's a maximum of 56.25 dominator points available. So can you talk about the balance between place differential and finishing position and dominator points for the clash? Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and real quick before I do one other thing I want to mention, the, the qualifying for the clash, I should have mentioned that in the race format, uh, is just a random draw. So there is no like on-track qualifying. It's a random draw. It takes place Saturday at 6.30 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, so that's how qualifying is set for the race. As far as dominator points, place differential, all of that stuff, like you said, there's 17 drivers racing. So the most place differential you can get is 16. If you start 17th and win the race, 17 minus 1, 16. You can get 16 points for place differential. Obviously, you know, compared to a full 40-car field, we had a lot of those races last year where drivers failed technical inspection. They started in the mid-30s, and some of them could finish up in the top five. You're looking at 30-plus place differential points sometimes from some of these guys. So, uh, you know, there, there's less opportunity for place differential, so that cuts down on that portion. You mentioned about the dominator points. There's only a maximum of 56.25, but there's also less place differential, maximum place differential potential. So uh, does that mean dominator points are more important? It ends up no. Um, if we actually look at the percentage of total points available uh, that the dominator points are, so, so to get the, the total points available, you sum up all the finishing positions, um, place differential nets out to zero, and then you throw in all the dominator points, the dominator points make up only about just under 9% of the maximum total points. So if you add up uh, the finishing positions for these 17 drivers, uh, you know, the, and then and then get the three-point bonus for the winner, et cetera, dominator points still don't make up that much, only about less than 9%. To compare that to all the other regular season races, dominator points make up about a little over 10% uh, at Watkins Glen, and we really don't find dominators at Watkins Glen to be super important, maybe one occasionally. Uh, and then even at the 500-mile races, so we're talking Bristol, not 500-mile, 500-lap races, Bristol, uh, Martinsville, for example, where there's up to possibly 375 dominator points available, that's 25% of the maximum total points could be dominator points. So uh, that shows that dominators are so much more important when it makes up 25% of the maximum points versus here we're only talking less than 9%. So dominator points, not very important. Doesn't mean a dominator can't be in the winning lineup. We almost had that last year if Denny Hamlin and Brad Keselowski had not wrecked each other in the last lap. Uh, they probably would have been in the winning lineup together, even though they started first and second. And that shows how important finishing is here. Uh, so with the place differential reduced, the dominator reduced, uh, finishing position is definitely at a premium. So you don't just have to pick all drivers starting in the back. That said, you're still going to want a majority of your drivers coming from the back um, just because it, this is such a random race. There will be drivers moving from the back to the front, and uh, it is, it's just an easier way to pick up points. Those, those uh, place differential points still do matter. There's just less of them uh, maximum that you can get for a single driver. So uh, it does change you know, roster construction a little bit when it's 17 cars versus 25 cars versus 40 cars. Um, so finishing position, we absolutely should be placing a premium on finishing position this weekend. Uh, a quick follow-up question on finishing position. Um, because there are only 17, does that mean if a driver crashes out, 
he still finishes with many more points than he otherwise would have if it had been a full 40-car field. Yep, absolutely. So uh, if a driver finishes 17th, then the easy way to calculate this is, so for example, if a driver wins the race, his finishing position is first, and he gets 43 points. So 1 plus 43 is 44. If a driver finishes second, he gets 42 points. 2 plus 42 is 44. So the easy way to figure out the number of points a driver will get is just take 44 minus the finishing position. Uh, so 44 minus 17, that is 27 points for finishing position if you finish dead last. So even the driver who finishes dead last still gets 27 points. So finishing position is important. But that said, there is also a smaller spread among the finishing positions, right? Uh, first place will get you 43 points, as I mentioned, plus the three-point bonus only for first place, so 46. But outside of the three-point bonus, the spread is really from 43 down to 27 points, only a differential there of 16. So um, it doesn't. It, it, while it does place a premium on finishing, it doesn't place a huge premium on finishing uh, because obviously the place differential you can also have up to 16, um, you know, points there. So it, it's definitely a race where both of those kind of combined matter. And so you'll be looking at the combination of place differential and finishing position. But if you get a driver who's going to finish first, uh, even though he starts first, he'll probably lead to some laps. Uh, he could very well end up in the winning lineup for the clash. So, uh, yeah, just one of those one of those. I mean, this is such a unique race, especially with only 17 drivers with 25. We definitely shift it more towards place differential. But with 17, there's a really cool balance between finishing position and place differential. But again, that said, the easiest way to win is mostly to pick drivers starting from the back. That doesn't mean you can't pick drivers starting up front, uh, but uh, you know you don't want to do too many drivers starting up front. This is fascinating, and I think the, the strategy for a race like this is really important. We're going to talk about that, but first I want to remind everyone that you can get a 30% discount to a special NASCAR pass through our NASCAR podcast homepage, rotoviz.com slash NASCAR podcast. With that pass, you get unlimited access to all of Nick's premium NASCAR content and your subscription supports the pod. Also, for the people who want just a little bit more NASCAR insight from RotoDoc, Nick has a couple of courses at Roto Academy, and I believe he might be contributing some more this year. You can find those at rotogrinders.com slash rotoacademy. Uh, Nick, let's talk about some cash game strategy for the Clash uh, how, I guess, one, do you think it's smarter in a, a race like this where there's a lot of randomness for people to be playing cash games? And then two, if so, what do you think the strategy is? Yeah, um, I think it's it's totally fine to play cash games um, in a slate like this if you're going to use a smart approach because there will be, especially in the first race of the year where there's a lot of new people to NASCAR, new trying it out, NASCAR DFS, there could be some advantage to playing cash games for, uh, you know, if you get a lot of people who don't quite know the ropes yet of NASCAR DFS. So certainly I think it's it's profitable to play cash if you, if you use sound strategy. So what is that strategy? Um, well, even though I talked about how finishing position is important and um, you can pick guys starting further forward and, and it's really more of like a GPP thing in cash games, you do want to go with as many drivers starting as far back as possible while still picking good drivers if you can. And, and the great thing is we have this random draw, so you could get guys like Kyle Busch starting dead last, for example. You lock that guy in the cash game. So, you know, if you get Jimmy Johnson starting dead last, you lock him in. Things like that. So you want to find drivers that are good starting in the back and then also an added bonus if they're really good restrictor plate racers. So, you know, drivers like Brad Keselowski, Denny Hamlin have shown to be 
very good at restrictor plate racing in the past. Uh, another name that I think will, will pop up certainly um, would be a guy like Ricky Stenhouse Jr., who won two restrictor plate races last year. So generally, uh, the idea is pick good restrictor plate races drivers who are starting in the back for cash games, and you'll be fine. And the reason is there is a higher floor just by picking drivers that start in the back. You can't get negative place differential in a race with a lot of randomness a race that has seen multiple crashes in every race in the past several years, uh, usually only half the field or less finishing the race. Um, that means that, you know, there's a very good chance that drivers starting in the first one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight spots will be crashing out. And you cannot have them in your cash game lineup if they're going to crash out because they're going to give you negative place differential, fewer finishing position points and totally tank your lineup. So, while I said it's okay to pick drivers starting further forward, that's more GPP strategy, uh, cash game strategy. You really want to be picking everybody starting in the back half of the field and, and even more towards like the back third of the field if you can make the roster construction work out. Don't worry about salary. Um, I, I, there's almost no way you can go over the salary cap uh, with the way DraftKings has priced this. You could pick the top four drivers in salary. And then you could still pick uh, Jimmy Johnson, who's priced 7,700, and Ryan Newman is priced 5,700, and uh, you know hit the $50,000 salary cap. So um, there's almost no way you're going to need to go max salary cap or over the salary cap for cash games. Um, just pick the best lineup that you can with the best drivers uh, that are starting as far back as possible. Okay, uh, you touched on this a bit earlier, but let's talk about GPP strategy. Uh, for the race, specifically kind of like ownership and other things that you're looking at in terms of maybe uh, not filling up the full salary cap and things like that? Yeah. Um, so ownership percentage is is definitely the number one thing you need to understand in restrictor plate racing. Uh, it's it's something that's very important in all forms of GPPs, in, in whether it's NFL, baseball, NASCAR, it doesn't matter. Ownership percentage is important because uh, if you can find drivers that are under-owned or over-owned relative to their upside or, or their downside even in some cases, uh, then you can take advantage of that. And that's what we do at Restrictor Plate Racing. We take advantage of the market. Uh, the market thinks they know more. They like to be a little safer, a little less risk tolerant. And so we uh, up our risk a little bit more, maybe. I mean, it depends. It, it, sometimes the market's just out of balance, and you can just use an optimized approach, uh, which theoretically, if it's if it's optimal, um, then and we talked about this on the last show, the most important episode of the year. But if it's if it's game theory optimal, then you're actually playing the perfect strategy. If you want to have a little more risk tolerance, you can go heavier on drivers you think the market will be too far under. And you can go even further under on, on drivers you think the market will be too heavy on. So uh, that's called an exploitative strategy. But that's what we want to do here uh, at, at, at restrictor plate racing, especially not just any restrictor plate race, but one where the drivers are only care about the win. There's no teammates here. I mean, there are teammates, but they're not like working together in the end of the race. Maybe in the beginning part of the race, they're working together in the middle part of the race. But when you get to the end of the race, it's all bets are off because they're not using these cars for the Daytona 500. These are cars they're planning on wrecking or, or winning with, uh, kind of like the all-star race in the middle of the season. They're, they're either wreckers or checkers here. So uh, I think it's, it's such a cool race, a uh, lot of randomness, but that means – you know, a lot of randomness. Most of the drivers should be close to, you know, between 35 and, and 55, 60, 65 percent ownership, depending on where they start. 
but you'll see drivers that are much lower than that. You could see some drivers that are much higher than that in terms of ownership centers. That's where we want to start with GPP strategy. Uh, some other things we want to consider, what are certain drivers DNF rates, especially at restrictor plate tracks? Uh, there are certain drivers who just have a lower propensity for crashing, be it at all racetracks or at restrictor plate races. There are just guys who have a feel of how to avoid you know, big crashes at these at these plate races. Drivers like Jamie McMurray, Paul Menard come to mind, for example. And then there's the other set of drivers that tend to just be out front, like your Brad Kislowski's, your Denny Hamlin's, who avoid these crashes other than when they're fighting for the win on the last lap of the race. Uh, they, they, if they're if they're out front, it's hard to get caught up in these crashes. A lot harder, I should say, to get caught up in these crashes uh, than if you're racing in the middle of the pack or at the back of the pack. So DNF rates for certain drivers, I think, matter. Understanding how they race, um, average running position matters because that'll uh, allow you to find drivers that, that should be able to avoid these crashes a little bit easier. You also need to understand how the races tend to play out. Uh, as I talked about just a little bit earlier, there's multiple crashes, it seems like, every race in this race. And half the field DNFs or more, uh, doesn't finish or more than half the field, basically every single time we run the clash so knowing that, that is going to impact how, how you play this. Uh, you don't want to go too heavy on any driver. I mean, if you go 100% on a driver and he crashes out, you're screwed. So uh, if you're multi-entering, for example, you really don't want to be 100%. I know that's an extremely exploitative, especially you know if you get a driver's going to be 10% owned. Uh, like last year, Danica Patrick was 11% owned. Uh, it makes sense to go a lot higher on her. But if you want to go 100% on her, then you're probably overdoing it. Now, of course, if she ends up in the winning lineup, you're going to be in great shape, and she did. But if she was, if she crashed out, you know, only 11% of the field is going to have her crash out, and 90% of the field won't, and you have her in 100% of your lineups, you're going to be, you know, in bad shape here. So you need to understand that these races tend to play out; that there are going to be a lot of crashes, um, and and that way you don't want to go too far above or below on any one driver uh, again if you think they're going to be under or over you can exploit that a little bit if you if you think the optimal for a driver should be 50 percent and he's only gonna be 20 percent owned maybe you go 60 70 percent something like that if you want a little more risk uh but uh you know probably don't go too high there so um that's kind of like the main gpp strategy i use and then of course you need to understand with 17 cars here that's a lot different than 25 cars as i talked about um, last year, it was almost that Denny Hamlin and Brad Keselowski were in the winning lineup together. They started first and second based off of the random draw. They pretty much dominated the whole race, the 75 laps, the two of them. Uh, and, and again, that's not many dominator points, but it just so happens because of the premium on finishing position uh, that those two would have been in the winning lineup until they crashed each other on the final lap. But that's how these races play out. They're going for the win. I expect to see a last lap crash uh, this this weekend. So... Um, GPP strategy is really, really just about understanding the market, how the race will play out, um, which people drivers are off of and on and, and so forth. Let's talk a little bit about driver evaluation, because I imagine that uh, people's perceptions of how guys perform at uh, at plate racing in general will impact ownership. How do you approach uh, driver evaluation or uh, I guess like uh, not course history, but just uh, plate racing history in general. And then specifically, how do you evaluate that for a race like this? Yeah. So 
Uh, my approach to to driver evaluation is uh, I mostly don't do driver evaluation at Daytona, um, especially for this race in particular. The Daytona 500 probably a little more, but in this race in particular, I don't do too much driver evaluation. You do want to know who the better drivers are, especially at plate racing um, at restrictor plates, because it will help you understand, like I said a little bit earlier, whether they're able to avoid DNFs more, whether they're more likely to be in the hunt for a win. Um, but, uh, you know, at this race, I don't do too much driver evaluation where I think driver evaluation helps in GPPs this week, excuse me, this weekend, um, is in understanding their influence on ownership percentage. Like I said, everybody thinks, uh, you know, they kind of know Brad Keselowski is a great restrictor plate racer. They know Ricky Stenhouse Jr. Good restrictor plate racers. One, two, they know Danny Hamlin. They know Martin Truex Jr. Et cetera. Kevin Harvick are good restrictor plate racers. So with that said, that'll probably influence the ownership percentage of these drivers and you can take advantage of that by uh, take advantage of the overconfidence of of people knowing these drivers are very good and fading them in appropriate spots if we think they're going to be overowned. you also of course need to adjust for salary and all that stuff but uh it really helps you understand what ownership percentages will be like so you can take advantage of not going too crazy on on these drivers but uh by and large, I don't do too much driver evaluation. Practice really doesn't come into play here, uh, so I'm not worrying about practice at all. Um, and really just, uh, again, playing the market here. So driver evaluation, I mainly use it to understand what the market's going to do. Wait, is there even practice for this race? I didn't even know there was practice. Yeah, there's there's practice, but uh, you know we're talking about practice. We're, right. we're not really. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're just gonna run around sometimes in in single car, sometimes in a pack, just to get for feel for things. But uh, yeah, it, it's it's really not important to the clash here. Yeah. Uh, okay. So on the rare occasion that you are doing some sort of driver evaluation, uh, what stats are you looking at? So you really want to look at. Um, Driver rating, I guess, at restrictor plate races, that's much more predictive than finishing position given the nature of, of how restrictor plate races work. And you see a lot of crashes, uh, even in the full 40 car fields, right? We get multiple big, big crashes, which takes out 5, 10, 15, even more drivers sometimes. So, uh, you know, you want to, instead of looking at finishing position, you want to look at average running position. You want to look at driver rating. Uh, quality pass percentage is interesting because that tells you the percentage of the time that when a driver does make a pass, that pass comes inside the top 15. And, and of course, running closer to the front is good because it's more likely that you're going to avoid the big one the closer you are to the front. So average running position, quality pass percentage, driver rating at restrictor plate races are all important. Um, that said, there are some drivers that just hang out at the back uh, of the pack in, in the bigger races, the 40-card field races. Uh, and they'll just hang out all the way in the back. Uh, maybe even have a pack that's like kind of separate from the main pack and just kind of ride around. But that's because there's 188 laps, 200 laps, and, and there are no rush. You can move up through the field really easily. So they do that just to avoid these big crashes. Um, we could see that in the first stage here and, and in the beginning part of the second stage. Uh, but, uh, you know, once we get towards the latter half of the second stage, they're all going to be packed up. There are no bad cars here. All of these, even even Casey Kane, who has switched teams and is now racing uh, for the team that Michael McDowell used to race for last year. McDowell is always in the hunt at plate races. So there's no bad cars here. We don't need to worry about practice, like I said. Um, we don't need to overdo the driver evaluation as well. But but really, you want to look at which drivers have done well at restrictor plate races, how you can see that, go to roadways.com slash NASCAR hyphen splits, and that'll take you to our NASCAR splits app 
where you can check out where uh, you know, all the different stats for, for each of the drivers in this race. Uh, that'll be updated this weekend with the, uh, uh, you know, I guess, updated uh, salaries from, from this slate, and uh, then we'll be good to go. So, yeah, I mean, driver evaluation, it's, it's not hard here. Who's a good restricted plate racer? Look for, you know, quality pass percentage, driver rating, and average running position. They all highly correlate here, uh, and, and those three things will be what we look for. All right, so you mentioned that qualifying is set by a random draw, uh, and the draw is Saturday at 6.30 p.m. Eastern. So uh, you can't give any picks now without knowing in advance where the drivers are going to start, but can you talk a little bit about uh, which drivers might be chalky if they have a qualifying position toward the back of the field? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think the salaries are a little interesting this weekend. Um, the highest priced driver is 9500 which is Brad Keselowski. Uh, a lot of times we'll see drivers priced over 10K, but it, you know the average salary uh, with $50,000 and six drivers, you're spending an average of $8,333.33 on a driver. Well, there's only five drivers that come in above the average salary. So I don't think salary is going to influence ownership percentage too much. Uh, typically a higher salary will uh, all things being equal, reduce ownership percentage because people want to save money here. It's not really going to play out like that because, uh, you know, we're we're not really worried about salary. So uh, I think Brad Keselowski obviously will be we very highly owned if he gets a, a draw that's in the back half of the field. One of the better restrictor plate racers. There was a while there where Team Penske had won. It was something like four of the five restrictor plate races. If you add in, um, if you just look at Ford in general, you add in Ricky Stenhouse Jr.'s wins last year. You know, Fords have been pretty dominant at plate tracks uh, other than, you know, for the wins, I could say. Um, obviously, Denny Hamlin and um, you know won, won the Daytona 500 a couple years ago. He's always in the hunt, so he'll be chalky for sure. Um, Martin Truex Jr. is underpriced, and so if there is a little bit of influence by salary, the fact that Martin Truex Jr. is priced at $7,900 and was our defending champion has been in contention for you know, restricted plate race wins, almost beat Denny Hamlin for the Daytona 500 Denny Hamlin one. Uh, Martin Truex Jr. will be obviously very chalky. Ricky Stenhouse Jr., if he qualifies in the back, and by if he qualifies, I mean if he gets randomly drawn into the back, should be pretty chalky given that he won two restrictor plate races last year. So, those will be the chalkiest set of quartet of drivers there if they qualify in the back. Um, should be all should be cash game plays if they're in the back third of the field for sure. Okay. Um, on the flip side, which drivers do you think are contrarian, uh, even if they have uh, a starting position in the back half? Yeah, I think this is this is a pretty cool part because this is the part we want to exploit for GPPs. Um, couple of names I have circled here. I actually think Jimmy Johnson could be a little less chalky than normal. Uh, he struggled a bit last year. There's a lot of good plate racers, and um, you know Jimmy Johnson hasn't been the elite of the elite plate racers in the past several plate races, but he has in the past won many, many plate races, so it's not like he doesn't know what he's doing here. But I think relative to other drivers around him, uh, in terms of, of uh, I, guess, I wouldn't say around him, but if he qualifies in the back, there would be other drivers that I think would get higher ownership percentage, especially if you get multiple guys like you know Kyle Busch or Kevin Harvick, Brad Kozlowski, Danny Hamlin starting in the back. Jimmy Johnson will go under-owned, I think. So he's a guy I want to target, especially with the new Chevy. 
we don't know the the range of outcomes there as much as we would like to think, given there's a new car. So that kind of applies to all the Chevys. Um, so if we think any of these Chevys are going to be under-owned, I'm interested in taking shots at them to see if you know something happens to them at these restrictor plate tracks. Uh, it could also end up backfiring, and, and it could be a lot worse because it's a new car and they haven't dialed in everything etc. But it means they have a wider range of outcomes. And if somebody's going to be under-owned and they have a wide range of outcomes, I definitely want to get more exposure to them. So Jimmy Johnson's one driver. Um, kind of flipping through the names here. Eric Jones, I think he could be kind of highly owned, but uh, my issue with Eric Jones is just experience at the plate tracks. Um, you know, He doesn't have as much experience at plate tracks as a lot of other drivers do. That said, of course, Alex Bowman last year didn't have a ton either and, and had a great race. But Eric Jones has been known to crash um, he's been, he's pretty aggressive. So I could, I could see him having a wide range of outcomes, but I see him having very significant downside. That said, uh, I think his ownership percentage will be probably be right around where it should be. Um, so he's not a driver I would go necessarily overweight on, I think, but scrolling down the list a little bit further, uh, I think Austin Dillon will be a name that probably is, is super low owned. Even if he starts somewhere in the middle of the field or the back portion of the field, he could be super low owned. Isn't really known as a plate racer. Um, you know, he's got plenty of experience though now. And again, he's in a Chevy, which gives maybe a wider range of outcomes this year. He's the third cheapest. Uh, I think if you look in his salary range, people will look at Jamie McMurray, who's $300 more. Uh, they might even look at Ryan Newman a little bit more, who's $200 cheaper uh, and has, you know, won a Daytona 500 before. Um, so I think Austin Dillon could be very low owned. He could be, you know, the Danica Patrick, the Alex Bowman of last year, where both of them were under 15% owned and ended up in the winning lineup. If Austin Dillon is anywhere from like seventh to 12th starting position, I expect he'll be in that 15% range, you know, plus or minus five percentage points. If he starts beyond 12th, like 13th through 17th, He'll be higher owned than that, but he won't be like bananas high owned. You know, up to like 35%, something like that. So that's a term we're using here, bananas high owned. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. Uh, one strategy you didn't mention is stacking teammates or manufacturers. Uh, and it makes sense for certain races. Does it make sense for this race? Yeah, um, so it, it's it's interesting because uh, with the, the volatility of this race, the fact that we get so many crashes, so many DNFs, Stacking teammates generally is okay at, at, at plate tracks, I should say, but here I don't think it's a big deal because there aren't really, as I mentioned earlier, there aren't teammates uh, at, when you get into the closing laps of this particular race. Uh, I, I think if you get Joey Logano and Brad Keselowski out front one, two, and uh, you know going for the win here on the last lap, I think you could see contact between them. I really do, um, especially uh, – I don't want to get into individual situations because this will probably apply to all teammates, but especially given how Joey Logano struggled last year, you know he wants to get a win under his belt. He won this race last year after the incident between Keselowski and Hamlin. But uh, just in general, I don't think you know teammates uh, will be working together on the last lap. They might work together for a portion of the last lap, you know, push each other towards the front. But uh, going for the win, I think you'll see them try to beat and bang each other. Hopefully they do it cleanly, um, you know, kind of like uh, Truex and Denny Hamlin did a couple years ago for the Daytona 500 win. But uh, it could be dirty. But there's no need to stack teammates here. Uh, one thing I will say is given that the little bit we don't know about the Chevys, if they somehow do have an advantage, I don't mind doing a few lineups where you're, 
you, you play a little Chevy heavy. Uh, I didn't even mean to rhyme that. That was kind of cool. You go a little Chevy heavy and uh, stack some Chevys. So I don't mind that. Other advanced strategies I think are really cool. Um, one thing that you know everybody knows about for the most part with restrictor plate racing is the driver starting in the back. You pick them. I think it's a pretty cool strategy to maybe go a little underweight on the driver starting 17th and 16th because they'll be the go-to drivers there. So if if Kyle Busch starts 17th, we know he's going to be chalky. Uh, you know, he's probably going to be 70 something percent owned, 65 percent owned at, at best. But there's a 50 percent chance of crashing out of this race. So maybe going 40 percent on Kyle Busch is is risky, but uh, it could pay off something like that. So 17th, 16th. I don't mind being a little underweight on them because I think uh, there is sort of a nonlinearity with ownership percentage way back there uh, where people recognize now with plate strategy that these are the drivers to pick. So I'm not saying fade them. I'm saying be slightly underweight compared to what you would normally be on those, probably those two starting positions. I think when you get to 15th, it doesn't really matter as much, but uh, everybody knows that starting in the back is better. So kind of an advanced tip there um, would be to maybe just go slightly underweight. It worked out last year. If you, if you look at last year's um, winning lineup, which uh, of course was um, my lineup, the, I didn't have the driver starting 17th or 16th. I, I take that back. Uh, I had one driver starting – yes, one driver – I had Daniel Suarez who started 16th in the winning lineup, um, but did not have the 17th place starting driver, did not have the 15th place starting driver. So um, it was kind of a strategy I suggested last year as well, going a little under on 17, 16, and 15. Um, it turns out because it was Daniel Suarez who was racing his first cup race ever, I think, um, it, you know, starting 16th, he was ended up only 35% owned. But if it was somebody else, a little more chalky, uh, a good driver like Kyle Busch, for example, uh, I think the ownership percentage was going to be very high. So if you get a chalky driver back there, 17th, 16th, I don't mind a little extra underweight on them. Interesting. Um, talk about the content that Rotoviz is going to have in support of NASCAR this week. Yeah, so um, obviously we're doing the pod here, and we're recording it Friday midday-ish, early afternoon, depending on your time zone, and it'll probably be released uh, later tonight on Friday. No, immediately. So, I'm immediately. editing this bad boy immediately. Awesome. That's great. Uh, so that will happen, and uh, after that, I'm going to take the rest of the day off. I've got a lot of appointments and all that stuff. Kitty has to go to the vet, but... Uh, Saturday, we're going to get all the data prepped and get the apps uh, ready so that we can have them to go after the qualifying draw. Uh, now, remember, the qualifying draw is 6.30 p.m. Eastern time, so it'll take some time to update the data. Uh, we want to get time to get reactions, so I'm going to be updating the data after the draw. I won't have the apps updated immediately, of course, uh, and then I think the best way to do this is to have a show, The Road of His Live, on Saturday – um, instead of Sunday morning, because Sunday morning I will want to be setting lineups as well. Uh, it'll be important for me to do that, and, and given the small time frame that we have between qualifying and the race, normally you know we get qualifying on a Friday, sometimes on a Saturday at midday uh, instead of later Saturday. So we're gonna do Road of His Live Saturday night. It's gonna be at 8:30 Eastern, 5:30 Pacific. Road of His Live. Uh, it will not be at rotaviz.com slash live. It will be on my personal Twitch page. We're going to try this out. I'm going to give it a test go. If it's good, if we like it, uh, we will probably end up starting a Rotaviz Twitch page and uh, do that. But I'm going to do it on my personal Twitch account, 
which is twitch.tv slash Tecate, like the beer, the Mexican beer, twitch.tv slash Tecate. And I made it, named it that because of the beer. I love this. I love Tecate. Uh, so we're going to do that just for this this uh, first time, see how it goes. Might end up doing it for Daytona as well. And then we'll probably start a Rotoviz uh, Twitch page if we like that. If not, we might go back to the YouTube thing. YouTube has kind of changed the way that uh, they, they allow people to do certain things. Um, and so... We're kind of exploring our options here, but that's what we're going to start with, see if the Twitch deal works out nicely. Uh, so we're going to do that for, for 8.30 Eastern, twitch.tv slash Tecate, T-E-C-A-T-E. Uh, and then I'm going to have the apps updated after that. I'm going to write my article, uh, so it'll be published kind of later. Eastern time will be pretty late, obviously. Um, and then uh, Pacific time, it won't be too, too late, I guess. But you guys will have all of that information. Wake up early Sunday morning. Set your lineups. The apps will be updated. Optimizer, uh, splits app. Um, we will not have the the uh, the SimScore app updated because it doesn't really make sense to for this race. But uh, I will try to um, kind of do a faux SimScore thing if I can, time dependent. Uh, and then, of course, the model will be in the article, my picks, drivers that I think will be contrarian that I like, et cetera, cash game, GPP picks, just like we did the last couple of years. I'll link back to all my articles from the past couple of years in the clash to show you my thought process, my winning lineups, my picks, so you can really get an idea of proper roster construction and which drivers you should be targeting for Sunday's race. Basically, what I took out of this entire podcast was that I need to create a ton of uh, sort of corporate-esque Twitch accounts and then just wait for them to want to get on Twitch, and then they have to buy it from me. Because yeah, that's well, definitely going to happen with you with Takate. It's actually funny. Here's a here's a cool story about that. Uh, when I signed up for Twitch, um, I uh, tried to sign up under the name Takate, and it was taken. So Takate must have actually had a Twitch account, or somebody else took that name. And then there was a bunch. There was a recently. I don't know. It was a couple months ago, or a month ago, or two. Um, Twitch released a bunch of, of popular names that uh, I guess didn't use their account or whatever. And so I looked and Tecate was one of those. So I was Tecate LV for Las Vegas. Now I'm just Tecate. So I switched it over. But uh, maybe, maybe not uh, if, if Tecate has given up on their Twitch account. But uh, we'll see. I'll, I'll probably end up changing it someday. But uh, right now it's twitch.tv slash Tecate. We're going to create a road of his one uh, unless that's taken. So um, <laughs> Yeah, someone else it, took a road of his. It, it, it's already taken, though, and, and I think you guys know who took it. It's me. So um, we'll, we'll have a road of his Twitch account uh, if, if we think it's a good idea. All right. That is going to do it for this NASCAR edition of On the Daily. For Nick Giffen on Twitter at Rotodoc, I'm Matt Friedman, Matt at the Oracle. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for listening to On the Daily, the Rotoviz Daily Fantasy Sports Podcast, powered by Rotoviz Radio. And special thanks to Randy E. Aguabo for the introduction. Please review the podcast on iTunes under the established Rotoviz Radio feed. Contact us via email on the daily DFS at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at on the daily DFS. Live. 
Love a good deal? Sail into the season at Banana Republic Factory's Mega Labor Day Sale. Entire store 50 to 70% off. Dresses from $19.99. Polos from $16.99. Find your nearest store or shop online only at Banana Republic Factory. Love a good deal? Sail into the season at Banana Republic Factory's Mega Labor Day Sale. Entire store 50 to 70% off. Dresses from $19.99. Polos from $16.99. Find your nearest store or shop online only at Banana Republic Factory. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G. Because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from Metrics second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.